Christian Parenting. Hey friend, I'm Summer Colbert and you are listening to the Love Where You Are podcast. Each week I host real and relatable conversations to encourage you to embrace your season, grow in your faith, parent with purpose, and live life on mission for the gospel. I'm so grateful you're joining me today. In this episode, we welcome guest speaker Amanda Hope Haley. Amanda is a friend of the Love Where You Are podcast who spoke with us earlier in the year about common misconceptions people have about the Bible and its stories. Amanda has a Bachelor of Arts in Religious Studies from Rhodes College and a Master of Theological Studies in Hebrew Scripture and Interpretation from Harvard University. She is a lover of the Bible. It's God, it's words, it's people, and it's history. She writes and does a podcast as the Red-Haired Archaeologist, bringing readers and listeners on her journey to understand artifacts that can contextualize Scripture. She contributed to The Voice Bible as a translator, writer, and editor, and she has been a content editor and ghostwriter for popular Christian authors, and she is the author of her own two children's books, Copper Finds a Scroll, and now Copper Finds a Manger. You can give a gift that brings you and your child closer to God, and also supports a Christian book author. You can buy Amanda's two children's books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Christian Books. In today's conversation, Summer and Amanda are talking about her latest book, a Christmas-themed story, Copper Finds a Manger. They discuss the details we might have missed hearing the Christmas story year after year, and the significance of certain events. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back, sweet friends, for what is the final episode of season two of the Love Where You Are podcast. I am so grateful that you have chosen to spend your time with us today, and I cannot think of a better way to conclude this season than to welcome back a dear, sweet friend, the red-haired archaeologist herself, Amanda Hope Haley. Welcome, my friend. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm yes. so excited to be here. <laughs> oh, me too. Y'all, we've been chatting offline for you know, <laughs> off recording for a while now. And so we've just been catching up on life, but I'm so grateful just to, to be able to share about all the things going on with your latest projects. And, you know, the last time you joined us, we talked about a lot of the common misconceptions that people have, just that they've learned in Sunday school that they took as, you know, biblically accurate or historically accurate. And sometimes that's not always the case. And it's always good to be learning and growing and your area of expertise as a biblical archaeologist is such a helpful tool. And that's why I love to elevate your platform and share your perspective with our listeners. And so moms, if you've got kids in the room and they think this is, uh, we're gonna be talking about the manger today and just the Christmas story in general, bring your kids in and let's listen to this together and, and hear what Amanda has to say. So we read this in scripture every year, the Christmas story. We will gather around our trees, maybe on Christmas Eve or on Christmas day, we'll read the story. It's part of many of our traditions and our Christmas Eve services. We hear Linus recite it in the Charlie Brown Christmas episode. I mean, it is just, it is very present as a part of our holiday culture. But I want to talk today about some of maybe those important details that we might've been missing for years all along. And then of course, we're going to tie in your latest book, which is Copper Finds a Manger. And so I'm excited to dive into that, but let's get started today just by asking you, where should we start? when it comes to really pausing to understand the context or where we just understand the setup for the birth of Jesus as it's told to us in scripture. Let's begin there. Okay. Well, 
anytime I look at scripture, my default is to consider where we are in history. Yeah. That's, I guess that's what happens when you're an archaeologist. That's what you think about. And so historically, um, when you look at the New Testament, if, if you're Protestant, like me, I was raised Protestant, then there is what we call the 400 years of silence or the time between the Testaments. And Jesus' birth obviously comes right at the very end of that. Yeah. And growing up, I think... I just pictured, I just pictured the Jewish people basically sitting on their hands and being very, very quiet and, and, um, you know, just, just waiting, just, I don't know, in in my mind, they're not even speaking during that time, but in history, this was a huge time because during the time between the Testaments, that's when Alexander the Great came through and prior to him, you have the Persian empire that is in control of the land of Israel. Well, Alexander comes through, he brings these Greek ideas and he, he dies really young. He's only 30 when he dies and his empire fractures. And one part of that eventually becomes the Roman empire. And so when Jesus is born, that that's what he's born into is this Roman empire. Mm. And the way the world has been set up at that point is the Romans are in charge. Caesar Augustus is the Caesar. He is the time he is the Caesar from when Jesus was born up until he dies in 14 AD. And um, so, so he is ruling at that point, but then at, so he's the political head, but then we also have Herod the Great, who is the Jewish king of the area. And so Jesus is born into this strangely fractured society that on a secular level is Roman, but then being being Jewish and being born into a Jewish family, he comes from this, this tradition, this heritage of, of a deep, deep faith. And so he's born into what is really a very strange world, something that's kind of different difficult for us in the modern West to understand. Yeah. Um, so for me, I start there. That's sort of, um, that, that's the backdrop for Jesus's birth is, is this political situation. Okay. Yeah. And that's good to know, because I think we can relate to that now, this kind of a fractured society. And as we're going into the holidays, you know, with wherever you stand with all of that, it's, we can relate to that, I think now more than ever. And so it, it's good to understand that backdrop. Now let's introduce the characters. Obviously, we have the angel who comes to Mary, and then she has to make a very important decision, as does Joseph. And so talk about the significance of her insignificance and why that's important for us to consider. Well, it's important because throughout the Bible, whenever God does anything, he He doesn't pick the people you would expect him to pick in, in society, you expect for power and strength and Kings to come from, they expect them to be strong, handsome men who are the oldest of their family who have been elevated by society. You know, we as humans expect for strength and power to come from the places that we honor and respect, right. but God always picks that underdog. King David was not an oldest son. Right. I mean, you, you go all the way through the old Testament, almost all of the heroes are coming from unexpected places from a human understanding. Yeah. And so that that's exactly where we are with, with Mary, a, a young woman who, I mean, a woman receiving a revelation right. from God, that, 
that initially is is a little bit strange and, and right. definitely unexpected because women were more mar- more more marginalized in society yeah. than we are today. Um, so right from the very beginning of this, Jesus is coming from a, a, a place that is unexpected. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And then you add in just the importance. I think we we downplay or we just really don't understand. Um, the Jewish traditions and, and the mm-hmm. culture of the day. And because you think, well, okay, well, Joseph had to make a decision whether or not he was going to marry her because there was this mm-hmm. thing that nobody could explain and we could assume what had happened, but not really. But I mean, dive into that from the, the cultural standpoint and the impact of both of their faith in choosing to get married, Joseph choosing for her to still be his wife, to assume responsibility for her, because in in society, that was a level of protection for a woman, right? To have a husband. And so they have to make this decision to stick with the plan. He's going to marry her. He chooses not to consummate their marriage until after the birth of Jesus. Like, why is that important for us to understand from the cultural standpoint of him assuming that responsibility for her, despite the fact that he had all license to say, never mind, see ya. Well, I mean, it, it shows the kind of family that is going to be raising Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is, of course, the son of God, but his earthly father figure is going to be Joseph. And so the the character of the character, um, not I, I don't mean that in a literary sense. <laughs> I mean, that the person who he is, yeah. his character is obviously one of of dedication, of honor, of humility. Um, he and he must have had a supernatural connection to God to be able to walk into the situation because what happened to Mary is absolutely unprecedented in the world. Right. Nothing like it had ever happened before. And who among us without supernatural intervention would have ever made the choice that he did. Mm -hmm. And so from before Jesus is born, of course, we as readers 2000 years later, we see the story of Gabriel coming down and giving the annunciation to Mary, but Joseph wasn't actually privy to that, you know, so he, he had to make small leaps of faith at the time until he received revelation of his own. Mm -hmm. Um, So just being open and having the kind of faith, that allowed for the Holy Spirit or allow, allowed for God to work in his life at that point. Um, I mean, that's important to know because he was going to be God. He was going to be Jesus's adopted father yeah. here on earth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you imagine the weight of that, my goodness. And I, I wonder, and of course there's no way we can only speculate, you know, if he really understood the weight of that as he was saying yes, or if it was just something that maybe later on in the fact he was like, Oh my goodness. Look at what God he, entrusted to me. Yeah. He he may not have under he had to have understood the God component at a certain point because in that culture the firstborn oldest son and of course aside from the revelation that they received they really didn't know 50-50 was going to be a boy or a girl but for the oldest son to be not his mm. in that culture would have been challenging for him because in that sort of patriarchal society yeah. absolutely everything that the first son is so very important they receive the double inheritance and 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 all of that and so he he as a man would be thinking about his legacy and about his children and what the future would be. And so right off the bat to know that that first child is not biologically his had to have had some sort of an impact on his psyche. And that is something 
that, that I mean, that he moved past to become really a hero of our faith today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you think about that. I mean, you just really, when you pull it all into context, you've got the social pressure of making that decision. And then you have the political instability that you're describing for us. I mean, there's a lot of weight to those decisions and he still chose faith as a result of God's hand over this whole story. And I think that's really important to note that, I mean, we can relate to this more than I think we realize of man, times were stressful and it was difficult and he was subject to ridicule and compromising his bloodline. Like all the things that you're talking about based on culture, that's a really important thing to note. And so now we're faced with this decision of they have to travel Mary is expecting. They can't just stay put in a safe little comfortable place. They have to move on. And then we know the birth of Jesus took place in a very unlikely place. Talk about why that's important. I mean, I know we're like, okay, he's a lowly king. He was born in a manger. But, uh, you know, in your book, Copper Finds a a Manger... You know, we talk about how he discovers that and he unearths it and he has this really cute conversation with a donkey, which I think is just adorable. And the donkey's like, oh, that's what I eat out of. And we're like, wait a minute, that's where they laid our savior. That's incredible. So why is it so significant for us to really focus on and understand when Jesus was placed in a manger or a feed trough more or less? Yeah. Yeah. I, as an archaeologist, when we find artifacts, what I love is when we find an artifact and it's unexpected. It doesn't look the way that we think it will because it makes us go back to the scripture and, and reevaluate our preconceived notions. And so mangers have been uncovered and we know that mangers were stone and they were just these open stone boxes. Mm -hmm. And so in the story, copper, copper finds one and has a conversation and he, you know, basically he expected mangers to look more like they tend to look in our modern nativity scenes that we put up in our homes today. I know I put mine on my mantelpiece growing up. My parents often put it under the tree. We put them in honored places in our houses on Christmas. Mm -hmm. And typically they are barn structures that have figures inside of them who are often dressed in very brightly colored robes. And sometimes there's snow. I know I grew up with one that had snow on it. If you really think about it, that's very strange for Jerusalem. (laughs) It happens, but it's rare. Um, And then the manger itself is often just made of wood, um, maybe just, you know, a little, little box with two X's on the side. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, what we really envision are simple cradles, mm-hmm. things that look more like cradles when actually it was, it, it was an animal's feeding trough. And so these mangers have been found in Israel with the remnants of the food that animals ate out of still wow. inside of them. Microbiologists can do scrapings and tell you what foods were in there. They can actually even to some degree that this is new, but they're even finding the DNA in thousands of year old saliva and being able to tell you what animals used it. The science of archaeology is fantastic and it's really helping us understand the way it looked. So cool. Well, so because because we understand that there's something about seeing that stone box that you know an animal ate out of, it really it, it makes you wonder, like, how did that happen? Because if you put suddenly a stone box in our pretty little wooden barns, that doesn't really fit. Yeah. And it shouldn't fit because that's not what the world looked like back then. Our nativity scenes today really developed during the Renaissance. Mm -hmm. They came to look the way that they did um, in Renaissance Italy. Mm 
They were developed by the wealthy of society. And it was really popular at the time for wealthy people to put on these tableaus where they would have sort of living art done. People would, well, we do them today too. You'll have living nativity scenes. Right. That's what they would do at the time. And so our manger scenes actually are a picture of the way the Christians in Renaissance Italy pictured it, the clothing that they wear, the fact that it's in a barn, because these would be done out in the countryside. And that's where barns were. First century Bethlehem, first century Judea, any of the major cities, the animals, um, they, they lived in the houses with the people basically. Yes. The first century looked totally different than, than the way we maybe imagine it. And so at the time people would build houses and on the, they would be typically two stories. And on the first floor, you would have your kitchen and you would have your stalls where your animals lived. And the part of the reason they did this is because heat rises. Mm-hmm. And so in the evenings, in the morning, um, everyone would wake up. And if you're living inside the walls of the city, then the animals would be taken outside the walls of the city to graze. And then they would be brought in in the evening and they would, they, they would eat and they would sleep in the house and their body heat would warm up and warm the people. And on the second story is where you had the dining room. That's where you had um, the beds during the cooler time of year. All of the living of the family took place on the second floor. And then in the summers, uh, when it was really hot outside, sometimes people would actually take and they would sleep on the roofs upstairs. And so when the story talks about, um, so Mary and Joseph, they have to go to Bethlehem because Caesar Augustus is requiring a census. And that is because he is trying to figure out you know, the makeup of the empire at the time. When Jesus is born, we have just come out of a couple hundred years of the Jewish wars, where there have been wars between the Jews and the Romans. And the Jews actually ruled themselves for a while. So Caesar Augustus is, is trying to figure out the layout of everything. So they've gone to do the census. But with everyone flooding in, um, we... A lot of our Bible translations say that Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem and there was, quote, no room in the inn. Right. And that's a terrible translation. Um, It's a really bad translation. So the Greek word is, um, I have to to look at it, um, called talema. And that is the same. So in Luke 2, that is the word that is used. It is in many translations translated as in, but that is the same word that when you get to Luke 22 is translated as the upper room, Mm -hmm. as in the upper room where Jesus went and had the last supper. And so what is actually being described, that, that word can be used to mean an in, in the sense that we kind of think of it. But more than likely, what it is saying is there was no room in the upper part of the house. Okay. Because in Jewish culture at the time, hospitality is central to Jewish culture. Right. Uh, when people came in, there, there would have been some ends, maybe in the way that we think of them today. But by and large, when Jews would come into the city, they would go knock on doors. And the people who lived there would be obligated by their faith and by their traditions to welcome their distant relatives uh, because in theory, they were all distant relatives. Right. They, would be, they would have to welcome them in. And so what would be a better translation is Mary and Joseph, you know, they knock on the door. There's no room upstairs. And so they are still welcomed in. They are still shown as much hospitality as was possible. They just couldn't sleep upstairs. They were stuck downstairs. Mm. They were downstairs among the animals. 
And that's why Jesus could be laid in a trough. They were basically, you know, in the kitchen area. They weren't out in a field somewhere going into a barn. And so when I, when I, as a kid was taught about this, I would be told the story of there was no room in the inn, And it had this connotation that Mary and Joseph were turned away, maybe because Mary, I, I think because people thought Mary was a, you know, a woman of sin or something right. because she was pregnant and unmarried. There was that connotation to it. Actually, what is being described in the scripture is more, it's more a picture of hospitality. They were welcomed in. The people who let them in were doing the best that they could with the resources that they had. And that meant that Mary and Joseph were downstairs because there was just no room upstairs. That is so fascinating. This is beautiful to me too, extending it out to Luke 22, where it's like Jesus has this historical memory, or maybe he's heard these stories from his childhood and he's thinking about the last supper and he sends two of his disciples. He's like, Hey, go ahead of us. Make sure they got room upstairs. Cause maybe the unspoken part of that is we don't want to eat downstairs in the kitchen with the animals. We want to make sure there's room upstairs. (laughs) That's not in the scripture, but that's, that's something that's a connection that I make because it is the same Greek word that's used in both of those places. And so anyway, what I I want people to think about the story differently, since we know what the manger looked like, since we know it was in the bottom of houses, instead think about this actually being a picture of, of, of hospitality and all the Jews packing into Bethlehem and doing the best they could you know, to get through this thing that they were being required to do by the Roman government. It feels like now more than ever, parents need resources to help them confidently raise their children to know and love Jesus. At Christian Parenting, we want to give every parent the resources to learn and grow into the perfectly imperfect parent God created them to be. That's why we do what we do, and that is why we need your help. Your generosity ensures that we will have a strong start in 2023 to equip more parents through our growing podcast network, digital courses, online events, articles, and printed resources. Ending the year strong means that together, we'll be able to reach more parents and impact more families for Jesus. So please give generously by December 31st to help reach the year-end goal. Give today at cpgive.org. That's C-P-G-I-V-E dot org. Now let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, no, and that's something, and I love that. And that's why I love these conversations because it just, it encourages us to think about things that we've just never considered before. Because I love how you say that that family that did admit them, they're doing the best that they could with what they had. And yeah. they are not referenced at all in scripture. I mean, like we don't know anything about them. We don't know that she wasn't bringing hot water down for Mary to, you know, after the birth or that they weren't providing anything. The only thing we know next in the story is the visits of the wise men. And so we talked about this before we went live. And I I think this is really fascinating. And I want you to talk about this whole timeline because we've set up the story. We've introduced the characters. You've given us some context of the culture and really helped us to kind of reframe the the idea of them being in where Jesus was born, basically. And then we have these royal visitors in, in some sense, and they they come bearing gifts. And then, you know, you assume based on the, the nativity scene um, that they're there, you know, just it's all a package deal, but that's actually not the truth. And so talk about that in terms of timeline and the introduction to the wise men and, and how all of that ties together and what's important for us to know. 
So um, I, I feel like I say a lot of things when it comes to nativity that blows blow people's mind. And this is probably the biggest one. And that is there were not three wise men. I mean, maybe there were three wise men. There could have been as few as two. There could have been as many as 200. Wow. The tradition that there were three wise men came literally hundreds of years later. And I know I grew up being told that they had names. Balthazar was one of them. Uh, forgive me, I can't remember all three of them right now. But the tradition that there were three of them comes from the fact that there were three gifts. But really what is described in scripture is that there are these people, they are called Magi. We don't know where they're from, according to scripture. We just know that they're, they're not Jewish. They're not coming from Judea. Okay. They come and they bring the gifts of frankincense, myrrh, and gold, which those are traditional gifts that are taken to any kings. What we see is basically a diplomatic royal visit. Mm. These people, this, this caravan of, we don't know how many people come in and they go and they honor Jesus. We don't know when it happened. Right. Part of the reason we don't have a great timeline with this is because Matthew and Luke tell the story very differently and they include different details okay. and the wise men only appear in Matthew, the way that the shepherds only appear in Luke, there are bits and pieces that are in different stories. And so we don't know how they perfectly fit together. And so people over time, one thing, one thing I feel like I hear a lot is that, oh, the wise men actually came when Jesus was three years old. Scripture doesn't say that either. Scripture doesn't say when exactly they came, um, doesn't say how many there were, doesn't say exactly who or what they were. I tend to like the theory that they came, that they were maybe Zoroastrian because that word Magi is actually a word that was used in Persia at the time. Okay. Persia, of course, had historic connections with the Jewish people from where Darius allowed the rebuilding of the temple and all of that. So there would have been a natural connection there. Um, as I said, the word occurs there. I think that's a natural fit, but scripture doesn't actually say that. All scripture tells us is that they were foreign and they came to honor a king. Yeah. And so the next step people take is to look at the star of Bethlehem and they want to look at astronomy and say, you know, okay, so when could this have happened based on astrological events? Mm -hmm. And there was a similar... I, if you remember, I think it was last year, we had the star of Bethlehem phenomenon mm -hmm. and it was when two, uh, two planets aligned and it gave us the brightest star that was in the sky. It was December 2020. Um, well, okay. Okay. Thank you. So, um, that, that happened. Um, and a similar event happened in seven BC, Okay, but astrologically it wasn't a perfect alignment even at that point. And so people, and I, I want to, it, how do I put this? It's so great to be curious. And I think it's really natural for us to read something in the Bible and then want to go to science and go to the natural world and see, oh, well, that is evidence of that miracle right there. Right. The reality is there, there is no perfect timeline. There is no perfect event that points to it. But I think that's by design because this wasn't supposed to be a natural event. May God have used 
natural things to make it happen. Yes. But this was a miracle. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we're going to have evidence of it astrologically. And the point of the star of Bethlehem is not for us to be able to go back in history and point and say, well, that must be exactly when that visit occurred, or that must be exactly when Jesus was born. The point is that there was the supernatural event that caused these people who were not of the Jewish faith to recognize that this great king had been born Mm -hmm. in an unexpected place who was not recognized as king by by the Jews or by the Romans, but they miraculously knew this and came and had a full state visit for a child (laughs) and brought him the frankincense and the myrrh as if he were King Herod. Yeah. So... That's I'm sorry to say we don't know exactly when it happened. And there are lots of theories that are out there. But for every good reason that it could have been in 7 BC, there's another reason why it wouldn't be in 7 BC. Yeah. And King Herod, too, is a problem. If you if you look at our dating of this, when was Jesus born? I think we all would say, well, he was born in 1 AD, right? Because that's what our calendars say. Our calendars are actually flawed. <laughs> the BC AD dating system didn't really become popular until about 900 AD. Mm-hmm. And it's flawed. Because if you look just at the scripture... Jesus was born while King Herod was on the throne and King Herod died in 4 BC, which means that Jesus had to have been born prior to 4 BC or in 4 BC. If it happened that year, um, odds are it was a couple of years, even before that, we don't know. Um, but that mean that's why sometimes you will see scholars, even biblical scholars using the BCE or CE dating system as opposed to BC or AD because BC AD actually contradicts scripture. Because wow. if you say that Jesus was born in one AD, uh, that doesn't actually fit because in one AD, Herod was already dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had those little things in there. And I think we struggle so hard to make scripture perfectly align with our understandings of history that sometimes we can miss those miracle points. Yeah. Uh, That isn't in there. The the date of Herod's death, all of that isn't in there because we need to be proving that scripture is real and historically accurate. No, what we need to be noticing are those miracles that caused the wise men to come. However many there happen to be of them. Scripture, scripture is scripture is all about pointing us to God, not pointing us to our own perfect understandings of history. Yes. Oh, I think that's fantastic. And even as you're talking about this, you know, I don't want our listeners to be tempted to like, I'm packing up my nativity scene because it's not biblically no, accurate, no. you know, like it rather, I think it serves as a fantastic reminder and even a conversation starter of, yeah, this is what we've grown up with, but actually here's the truth behind it. And I think it just sparks that interest into like what you do and how you're able to interpret the timelines and the historical context and all of that. It's just fascinating to me. And that's why I think conversations like this are so helpful. And so you think about, you know, that scene and we've got the gifts and we picture, I mean, like growing up, that's all I've pictured is these people in these majestic outfits and they come and they present in these little golden boxes that are gilded with all types of, you know, all the different assumptions that we make about that. So let's dive into that. You've already blown our minds today, Amanda, and I love it. It makes me excited. And I hope it does for you too who are listening with today. Um, but let's talk about the gifts. 
and the yeah. significance because I, I've been fascinated by them as you know we have seen with the frankincense and with the myrrh and how they are foreshadowing of knowing what Jesus had come to do in the first place, which was to die for yeah. our sins and those were I don't want to like steal your thunder on all of that. So I no, really no. need to dive into the significance of each of those gifts because you have such a good point. Like we don't need to get hung up on what the Bible doesn't say, but we do need to pay attention to what it does say. So what yeah. does it say about the gifts? Well, it says that they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and I believe that it even states that, you know, these were gifts for a king. And that's absolutely accurate. So the first thing that we need to notice is that 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 political statement, honestly, yeah. that is being made by these people right. who are coming from a long way away, that they... You, they're not just paying lip service to this. They are bringing these valuable gifts. Yeah. Well, frankincense and myrrh, and I happen to have a little frankincense that I will share with you um, here. Frankincense and myrrh actually look really similar. They're both balms. I'm shaking it out. And this is, I've had it for about five years. Let's see. Can I, how can I do this so that you can see? Let's see. Aha. That's it. So this is frankincense and um, it's a balm from a tree and I'm dropping some. Um, even though I've had it for about five years, it's still incredibly fragrant wow. and, um, it does, as it warms up, it gets softer and it was, it was used as perfume. Um, basically that, that is this main, its main purpose is to be used as perfume. And then those perfumes would be used in different ways. Okay. And one of those ways of course, is in treating the bodies of the dead. And so there is that, I think, foreshadowing in Matthew that yes, gold is being brought, but then also the frankincense and the myrrh. And that, that, that is a tip of Matthew's hat to where the story is going to end. Right. Honestly, my hands smell so good right now. <laughs> Just from holding these for for just a couple of minutes, they're it, they're just these little bitty like rock kind of things. But when wow. they get warm, even your hand, they warm up. And so this, uh, you talk about at um, after Jesus' crucifixion, Mary Magdalene going, and she is going to treat the body. I, I often hear us talk about how they were used for embalming. Mm -hmm. That is accurate. In, in, um, in a historical sense in Egypt, absolutely embalming had been happening for thousands of years at that point. And of course, embalming involves removing the organs and, right. and doing a lot to the body. Actually in the Jewish culture, embalming is not a thing. This would have been, the, the body would have been packed with this stuff to try to hide the effects of the decomposition. Okay. Um, but so it, em, embalming is not the right word to use there, but it was uh, put with the dead to, to prepare and, and honor the body in that way okay. during, during the vigils that would be held for the dead afterward. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, that's a hint to it. So it, dual purpose of, you know, yes, this is a King political, but then, then also that, that nod to what is going to happen at, at the end of the book of Matthew. Wow. That is really amazing. And I like, as you've said, it's, the, the scriptures are the story of Jesus and, and they're everything about every aspect is meant to point us to God and, and to point us to that story of where it ends with him dying to, to yeah. save us from our sins and, and 
I, I just, I think it's so amazing. And and we get to that point in our story as we're talking about, you know, Christmas and we're like, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus and here's why, you know, because he came to die for our sins and we're so grateful for that. And there's, but there's just so much rich history to that, that I think is just so valuable for us to be able to share with our kids. As our families pick up a copy of Copper Finds a Manger, what do you hope for them to, to get out of this story and, and take away from it? Two things. One, I I hope it makes them go back to the scriptures and not just the Luke story. I think most of us read Luke at Christmas, but we need to read Matthew too. Yeah. To, to go back and look at it with fresh eyes and be able to maybe notice details that we haven't noticed before, or maybe notice things that we filled in that aren't actually there. So I, I hope it brings a fresh perspective. But then I also... Um, when you realize the difference between scripture and tradition, I hope it also makes us value tradition because looking at our nativity scenes, I will never stop putting mine up, even though it's historically inaccurate from an archeological perspective, what a beautiful Testament of the way Christianity has endured for all these years. I mean, there's a Christmas tree behind me. I, we decorate every year. We put candles in every windows, a lot of our Christmas traditions that we all value and love down to, down to the beverages we make and the foods that we cook. All of that is connections to our families and to 2000 years of Christianity going all the way back, the way our nativities are dressed and how amazing that a tradition from the Renaissance, that nativity scene has survived to today and is honored by so many Christians, especially Western Christians today. So all of that is to be celebrated. It's important to know the difference between what's scripture and what's tradition, but I don't mean to throw tradition out or devalue it in any way. All of that is beautiful. I mean, our Christmas trees, this comes to us from the Germans, right? And I'm not even German. I might... My background, I am as British as you can possibly be. <laughs> um, but but that, all of those different ways that our cultures worship or, or honor Christmas, yeah, all of those are important because those are how we, we connect with our ancestors. And all cultures have their own special, unique ways of doing things that not mm-hmm. everyone does. So we need to celebrate those differences and enjoy those differences and share those differences as a community of Christians. Yeah while still knowing what the text actually says. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that you remind us that everything that we would consider more or less American is not our nativities, our our Christmas trees, everything, but somehow it's come to be that sustaining story and the truth of the importance of Christ's birth and how he came to be our savior is, is just at the very heart of why we do this. And so I want to give you the opportunity as we close out today, with just a word of encouragement. Um, we, it's, it's cliche. Jesus is the reason for the season. Keep Jesus at the heart of Christmas, you know, all the different things, but I mean, we got to know as Christian parents that that is the most important thing of, through the chaos, through the crazy dinners, the the gifts, the shopping, the you know all the crazy things, the that pageants, caught up in. <laughs> yes, all of it. You know, how would you encourage us as Christian families to keep Jesus at the heart of this Christmas season and all throughout the year? Can you know, th- this just the simplest thing in the world? It's just read the stories, read the stories to each other. When I was growing up, every year, um, I, I grew up believing in Santa Claus. 
and I, my husband and I were not blessed with children. I don't know what we would have done because he was he did not grow up believing in Santa Claus. But, but every year on Christmas Eve, we would sit down and my mom would read, it was the night before Christmas, mm-hmm. and my dad would read Luke. And wow. so we had our moment of tradition, but we always, always ended with Luke. And that was what I went to bed with. And then, you know, I had my prayers at night and all of that. And I, I think that's it. Just always bringing it back to what actually is scripture. Yeah. Um, and I, you mentioned at the beginning, the peanuts and uh, the, the, the wonderful Christmas story that we have there. That's part of it. But honestly, what makes it so great and what makes it so iconic is the reading of Luke 2 that's, that's in there. Right. As much as we love those characters, that is really the heart of it. And that's what we've got to keep the center is the scripture. Yes, absolutely. Ah, what a blessing. And I just, I've learned so much and I hope you (laughs) today are just, you're smiling and you're taking this away. And this can be great conversation around your, your meal tables as you share a meal with your families and your friends and you're doing the, the Christmas celebrations and the traditions. And, And I love that you give us that encouragement to embrace and appreciate those traditions because the Lord designed us to be family and to enjoy time together and share meals around the table and to always point our conversation back to the Lord and thank him for all that he has done and continues to do in our lives. So, I mean, I am grateful for you. I want to make sure once again, that our listeners can connect with support you and get a copy of copper finds a manger. This is a perfect Christmas gift idea for you to (laughs) place a quick order and, and get that in, in time for Christmas. And that's something that you guys can also read throughout that, that uh, holiday weekend. So, I mean, how can they do that? Um, the easiest way may be just to go to my website, redhairedarchaeologist.com. You can find all of my books there or the book is available anywhere you like to buy books, as they like to say these days, Amazon and all the places. <laughs> so I will make sure and have a link in today's show notes where you can access that easily. And it is, like I said, just a perfect gift idea for you to enjoy as a family. And so thank you so much for being here, for sharing with us. I, I just love learning from you and you are such a blessing. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Love Where You Are podcast. I'm so grateful you joined in our conversation today. If you've been blessed by this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button or share this with a friend. Don't forget to head over to today's show notes where you will find all of the links to connect with today's guest, along with scripture references, resources mentioned, and some of my favorite takeaways. And hey, I'd love to connect with you. Check out the links to follow me on Instagram and Facebook, plus... Join the Ahava community, a Facebook group where we can dive deeper into today's conversation together. Until next time, go love where you are and live life on mission for Jesus today.